This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lois John Drage trudged to the bus stop on a July morning in 1960. The sun beat down on her, sapping all of her energy. As she wiped the sweat from her brow, a car pulled up to the curb. A familiar face in the driver's seat flashed her a smile. It was her co-worker, 30-year-old David Joseph Carpenter, a bespectacled, slim young man who she rarely spoke to. Through an intense stutter, Carpenter offered her a ride to work. Looking for reprieve, Lois gladly accepted. Almost before she closed the car door, Carpenter pressed on the gas. He wove in and out of traffic, making Lois sweat further. Her discomfort turned to panic as she realized the scenery around her was growing less and less familiar. When Lois asked Carpenter where he was going, he insisted he was lost. No matter what Lois said, Carpenter refused to turn around. Eventually, he stopped near the lawn of the Presidio Military Fort in San Francisco. Before Lois could react, Carpenter got out of the car and moved swiftly around to the passenger side. He ripped the door open and dragged the helpless woman out by her hair. He threw her down, pulled out a pocket knife in one hand and a hammer in the other. He hissed, I have a weird sex quirk. Do as I say, or I'll cut you. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today we're taking a deep dive into the life of David Joseph Carpenter, also known as the Trail Sign Killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first and only episode covering the life of David Joseph Carpenter, who terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 1970s. Carpenter murdered at least 10 people between 1979 and 1981. His infamous attacks, frequently perpetrated in popular hiking spots of the region, gave him the nickname the Trailside Killer. David Joseph Carpenter was born on May 6, 1930, in San Francisco, California. He was a shy and introverted child. His naturally withdrawn nature was likely exacerbated by his unstable home life. His father, Elwood Carpenter, was an abusive alcoholic. He was rarely present in his family's life, but when he was around, Elwood ruthlessly berated and beat his son. Carpenter's mother, Frances, only made matters worse. She was incredibly controlling and dictated every activity in her son's life. She enrolled Carpenter in both music and ballet classes, despite his protests. The classes made him feel effeminate, ashamed, and humiliated for years. As a young boy, Carpenter developed a severe stutter. He wrestled with the speech impediment for the rest of his life, making him even more self-conscious. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's possible Carpenter's stutter was linked to the abuse he suffered at the hands of his parents. A 2009 study conducted by neuroscientists at the University of Wyoming concluded that childhood traumatic experiences play a key role not only in the etiology of stuttering, but also in complicating the problem further by generating social anxiety and related personality problems. On top of the stuttering, Carpenter exhibited some extremely concerning behaviors during his childhood that are red flags for psychopathy. Psychiatrist J.M. McDonald identified three childhood behavior patterns that can indicate future criminal and homicidal tendencies. Known as the McDonald Triad, the behaviors include animal abuse, fire setting, and bedwetting. Carpenter abused and maimed animals. He also had prolonged issues with bedwetting. At age 14, Carpenter committed his first known sexual crime. His juvenile court records have been expunged, so information about his actions is limited. But we do know his crimes were so drastic that he was committed by court order to Napa State Hospital. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology, noted, Part of Carpenter's driving rage was this need to have sex. And yet he had this stutter, so it was very hard for him to meet girls and do the socially appropriate thing. As a result, he'd feel frustrated and angry as well as humiliated. It's not clear how long Carpenter stayed in the hospital, but after he was released, his abusive desires continued. In 1947, 17-year-old Carpenter was sentenced to the California Youth Authority after molesting two of his cousins, aged eight and three. It was there that Carpenter was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Harvard Medical School defines antisocial personality disorder as a 
long-standing pattern of behavior and experience that impairs functioning and causes distress. The condition is known to spur from negative environmental influences, particularly when the community or an adult role model is not supportive. Those with the disorder can be deceitful, reckless, exploitative, and even contemptuous towards others. While the symptoms of antisocial personality disorder can be reduced based on environmental changes, the disorder itself is not preventable. Following his diagnosis, Carpenter served his time at the California Youth Authority until he was released. We're not sure what Carpenter did immediately following, but in the fall of 1955, 25-year-old Carpenter married a woman named Ellen Heedle. Over the next several years, they had three children together. While there isn't much information available about Ellen and Carpenter's union, some sources state that their marriage was far from comfortable. Carpenter's overactive sex drive didn't go away as he grew up. In fact, it had gotten worse. Ellen reported that Carpenter demanded sex as frequently as three times a night. But as far as friends and neighbors could tell, Carpenter was nothing but a mild-mannered guy. He started a job at an advertising agency in the San Francisco area and took pains to hide his darkest tendencies. But by mid-1960, Carpenter found that he couldn't keep his abusive urges to himself. His quaint appearance began to crack. He targeted his co-worker, Lois Jondrage. He abducted her one morning in July, taking her into the Presidio, a closed military fort and neighborhood on the northern tip of San Francisco. But the Presidio was an active military base, and patrol officer Wayne Hicks saw Carpenter's vehicle suspiciously speeding through the neighborhood. He quietly trailed the couple, hiding just out of sight. After throwing Lois onto the grassy lawn, Carpenter removed a clothesline from his pocket and bound her hands. He then attacked the helpless secretary, stabbing her repeatedly with a pocket knife and bashing her head in with a claw hammer. When Hicks heard Lois's screams ring through the air, he sprang into action. As Carpenter beat Lois with a hammer, Officer Hicks yelled for him to stop. Without hesitating, Carpenter pulled a small pistol from his back pocket and fired at Hicks. Luckily, he missed, and Hicks had a chance to fire back. He hit Carpenter twice, once in his leg and once in his abdomen. He crumpled to the ground, subdued. Lois was rushed to the hospital, where, after an excruciating five hours of emergency surgery, she survived. In late 1960, Carpenter was tried for the attack and sentenced to 14 years in prison for the crime. During his sentence, his wife Ellen divorced him. In one fell swoop, Carpenter lost the normal life he had painstakingly worked to create. But Carpenter dealt with his incarceration surprisingly well and was considered a model prisoner. He was so good, in fact, that he was released in 1969 after serving only seven and a half years of his original sentence. Outside prison, however, his model behavior quickly fell by the wayside. Less than a year after his release, 39-year-old Carpenter was arrested for kidnapping, attempted rape, and possibly theft as well. He spent another nine years behind bars, from 1970 to 1979, 
Once again, he was released on good behavior and paroled to a halfway house. But Carpenter's violent urges only intensified during his time in jail, hidden beneath a polite, unassuming demeanor. On the morning of August 19, 1979, Carpenter left the halfway house and drove to Marin County, just outside of San Francisco. The spot was popular among adventure seekers and outdoor explorers, as it's known for beautiful hiking paths. Just as Carpenter arrived at the park, 44-year-old Etta Kane was hitting the trails for some fresh air. Etta Kane was a banking executive and an avid hiker. She often explored with friends, but on this particular morning, she was all alone. Etta parked her car at the base of a trail and began her trek through Mount Tamalpais, also known as the Sleeping Lady. This route was particularly well known for its scenic trail overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. Etta was gone for hours. As the sun went down that evening, her husband started to worry back at home. He contacted authorities and police took to the trails, bringing a canine team with them in case Etta had fallen off the path. They searched late into the night but came up empty-handed. All they managed to find was Etta's car, which was still in the parking lot, untouched since she began her hike that morning. When authorities resumed their search the next day, they found Etta's nude, lifeless body just a half mile into the trail. She had been shot in the back of the head with a 44 caliber gun. Investigators took note of Etta's scrambled belongings, some credit cards, a pair of sunglasses, $10 in cash, and nearly all of her clothes were missing. Her jewelry, however, had been left behind. Police were particularly surprised by the condition of the corpse. While stripped of all clothing, Etta had apparently not been sexually assaulted. Her body was found in a kneeling position, which could have suggested she was shot execution style, perhaps made to beg for her life before she was killed. Investigators searched the area extensively and spoke to locals, but they came back with little to go off of. The case quickly ran cold and stayed that way, until an eerily similar crime was uncovered just a few months later, only feet from where Etta's remains were discovered. Coming up, the trailside killer begins his spree. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Serial Killers will be taking the next two Mondays off. We'll be back with a brand new episode on January 6th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the story. On August 19, 1979, 49-year-old David Joseph Carpenter claimed his first victim in the trails of Marin County, 44-year-old Etta Kane. Authorities were left without any leads on her killer. 
In March of 1980, 23-year-old Barbara Schwartz decided to take a walk through the same hiking trail known as the Sleeping Lady. She brought her dog along for safety. At some point in her hike, Barbara was approached by a white man with a ball cap and a warm smile, David Joseph Carpenter. Carpenter coolly stopped Barbara to ask her a question. Seeming anything but dangerous, Barbara obliged, and the two chatted in the woods for a while. Then, in the midst of the friendly conversation, Carpenter whipped out a 10-inch boning knife from his jacket. In broad daylight, he repeatedly stabbed Barbara in the chest, spraying the dirt with her blood. A witness hiking nearby saw the vicious attack and screamed for Carpenter to stop. She then fled the scene to find help, leading park rangers to the site of the stabbing. By the time they got there, Barbara's corpse was limp on the ground. She was found naked and kneeling in a similar position to Etta Kane. Once again, investigators combed the scene, but their efforts were fruitless. Even with a witness, she was so panicked by the encounter, she couldn't remember enough about Carpenter's appearance to describe him accurately. Like Etta's, Barbara's case, too, ran cold. Investigators were left with only one clue, a pair of blood-spattered bifocals dropped at the scene. The glasses were determined to be prison-issued, but even after cross-checking various lists of recent convicts and parolees with a history of sexual offenses, detectives still came up with nothing. Carpenter inexplicably flew under the radar. The sheriff brought in a psychologist, Dr. R. William Mathis, to take a closer look at the case. Based on the ritualistic aspects of the two killings, Mathis hypothesized that the murder most likely hoarded souvenirs from his kills, almost like small prizes. Unfortunately, even with a psychological profile, police had no strong suspects, and they hit another dead end. Then, seven months later, in October of 1980, Carpenter struck again on the very same hiking trail. 26-year-old Ann Alderson disappeared while jogging on the trail one morning. Her body was found a few days later. She had been viciously sexually assaulted and shot in the head, execution style, just like Etta Kane. In the wake of Ann's death, a panic set in over the sleepy community of Marin County. It was official. A serial murderer, dubbed the trailside killer by the press, was on the loose, and his reign of terror over the San Francisco area was only just beginning. In November of 1980, Carpenter visited Point Reyes National Seashore Park, but he wasn't alone. Among the many other people on the hiking trails that day was 25-year-old Shauna May, who planned to meet up with friends in a parking lot at the other end of the trail. When she never showed up, her friends called police. For two days, police searched the trail. It ended with a grisly find. Four bodies, just a half mile apart, off the trail. The first belonged to Shauna May. She had been stripped naked and shot. Beside her lay the decomposing body of 22-year-old Diane O'Connell, who had been reported missing a full month before. Diane's murder was particularly gruesome. She had been sexually assaulted, strangled, and shot multiple times. The two bodies lay side by side in a shallow grave. 
Just down the path, the corpses of two more missing persons were found, Richard Stowers and Cynthia Moreland, both of whom had been missing since the middle of October. Both had also been shot in the back of the head. The two lay face down under a patch of brush. The Bay Area began to panic. Now they knew for sure there was a serial killer on the loose, hunting his victims on hiking trails. Everything about these murders, particularly the way the bodies had been left behind, instilled tremendous fear in the hearts of locals. Forensic psychologist Dr. Catherine Ramsland stated that anyone who's posing victims in a specific way is trying to extend the crime scene to the reaction of the first people who arrive on the scene. They want something to radiate out from their crimes in a way that will make them feel powerful again just thinking about it. Carpenter's murder scenes followed a pattern. The bodies of his victims were left either kneeling on the ground, lying face down, or otherwise posed into a submissive position. After these most recent discoveries, the trails of San Francisco were deserted. Residents and locals were afraid to leave their homes, but for the first time, police finally had a piece of traceable evidence. The bullets used in all four of the Point Reyes murders matched the bullets used to murder Ann Alderson, Carpenter's third victim. Feeling close to a breakthrough, police diligently monitored all the trails around the city. Helicopters conducted flyover searches for clues, and everyone from hiking clubs to Marines volunteered to guard the trails to help stop the attacks. Some police even took to horseback to patrol, but these efforts came up with nothing. After six weeks, though little progress had been made in the case, some residents began to feel safe hiking the trails again. On their spring break from UC Davis, 21-year-old Ellen Hansen and her boyfriend, Stephen Hartle, decided to go camping together in Henry Cowell Redwood State Park. On March 29, 1981, after camping the night, the couple took a hike up to an observation tower. It was here that a slender, bespectacled man in a ball cap approached them from the trees. Hidden in his hand was a small gun. The man approached the couple calmly. He spoke to them in a quick, low tone, using short sentences. He told Stephen he was going to sexually assault Ellen. The man warned that if Stephen refused, there would be fatal consequences. At first, Stephen and Ellen didn't know how to react. It wasn't until Carpenter revealed his handgun that they knew his threats were serious. Desperate, Stephen begged the stranger to let them go. But Ellen could see that the man was not going to budge. Ellen stepped forward, confronting the man face to face. She said, he's going to kill us anyway. In an instant, it was over. The man raised his pistol and shot Ellen point-blank in the head, twice. Horrified, Stephen tried to escape, but he couldn't move fast enough. Carpenter shot Stephen twice and fled the scene, leaving the couple for dead. But the trailside killer's work was getting sloppy. Normally, Carpenter prided himself on his ability to operate with precision, killing his victims carefully, so he had full control over their last breaths. A hasty murder like this was a far cry from his other killings, as he typically preferred secluded, emptier trails. In this case, multiple witnesses saw him that day. 
As Carpenter fled the scene, several people at the observation tower reported a suspicious man running out of the park. They described him in detail to police as a bald, unassuming man with a slender build and a pair of glasses. Surprisingly, some of the most crucial testimony came from a 10-year-old girl. As Carpenter rushed to his vehicle parked just outside of the camping grounds, the girl noticed. Suspicious of his frantic manner, she grabbed a nearby piece of cardboard and sketched, as best she could, the scene before her. A man escaping in a small, boxy red car. But it was the final report that was most damning of all, from one of the victims, Stephen Hartle. Miraculously, after being rushed to the hospital, he survived the brutal attack. Post-surgery, Stephen was unable to speak, but was determined to help however he could. Patiently, using nonverbal communication, police and a sketch artist were able to create a detailed composite. The rendition matched the testimony of the other hikers. The killer wore a ball cap, glasses, and had a slender build. The sketch was released to the public and printed in several local newspapers. Almost immediately, police received a tip via a hotline. A local woman recognized the sketch. She said the man's name was David Carpenter and that she'd met him several years prior on a cruise ship. She noted his stutter and claimed he made awkward advances towards both her and her daughter. However, there were several David Carpenters living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and police, while closer, still could not narrow down their search. The sketch continued to run locally, and authorities hoped someone who might know more would provide them with a tip. But potential tipsters weren't the only ones reading the newspapers. Carpenter was, too, and he was growing anxious. He grew a beard and changed his appearance as best he could. He also hoped that his new, more stable life would help him continue to avoid suspicion. He was now living with his parents and working in a warehouse. A parolee with a history of sex offenses, Carpenter had a hard time finding work. He was legally barred from working in a facility with women. The new warehouse job made it seem like he was a respectable man trying to re-enter society. For the first time in a while, he felt like he looked normal. But working with men did nothing to temper his sick and violent fantasies. He soon turned his attentions next door to the warehouse, to a print shop owned by the same company. Several women worked there, one of whom was named Heather Roxanne Skaggs. Skaggs was a 20-year-old recent high school graduate, and Carpenter heard she was in the market for a car. On May 1, 1981, Carpenter approached Skaggs, She was young and kind, and he felt drawn to her. Carpenter told her that he'd heard about her car shopping and claimed he knew of a great bargain not too far away. He offered to drive her over to take a look at the vehicle. During their conversation, Carpenter emphasized to Skaggs that she should go alone. He encouraged her to keep the location of the vehicle a secret and not to mention who she was going with. Skaggs accepted the offer, and the two left. But unbeknownst to Carpenter, Skaggs hadn't blindly trusted his word. Her boyfriend was suspicious of Carpenter. After all, he was an older, creepy co-worker who seemed far too interested in Skaggs. Just to be safe, Heather's boyfriend told her that if she failed to return home by 7 p.m., 
he'd report her missing to the police. When seven o'clock came and went, he frantically made the call. Police began their investigation swiftly by finding out who the last person was to see Heather. Her boyfriend and co-workers were quick to point him out, David Joseph Carpenter. Up next, we'll investigate the final undoing of the trailside killer. Now, back to the story. By the spring of 1981, 51-year-old David Joseph Carpenter had murdered 10 people. Dubbed the trailside killer, he usually sought out his victims on the hiking trails surrounding San Francisco. But after increased scrutiny from the police, Carpenter changed his methods. He invited Heather Skaggs to go look at a car for sale with him. When Skaggs didn't return home that night, her boyfriend called police. The first suspect on their list was the last person to see Skaggs alive. As soon as authorities arrived at David Carpenter's house, they couldn't help but become even more suspicious. Once he opened the door, police noticed the startling resemblance Carpenter had to a sketch of the trailside killer printed just a few months prior. Even just his name made them wary. David Carpenter was the exact name given by a woman calling a hotline about the killer. The final clue sat just in the driveway. Detectives took a hard look at Carpenter's car, a red, boxy Fiat. It was just like the one a 10-year-old witness had described the day the killer last struck. Police quickly consulted with Carpenter's parole officer who confirmed that he could very well be a suspect in Heather's disappearance. They also double-checked their records and confirmed Carpenter's name and profile had been accidentally left out of suspect lists for the previous trailside murders. Police took Carpenter to the station and questioned him about his relationship with Heather Skaggs, but he refused to answer. When pressed, Carpenter reportedly started stuttering so terribly that he couldn't speak at all. The interrogation continued for hours, eventually turning to Carpenter's background and childhood. When speaking about his early life, Carpenter sounded full of bitterness and resentment. He mentioned the dance classes he had been forced to take as a child, and another investigator shared that he too had taken dance when he was young. This resonated with Carpenter in some way, as he sat in a sudden, cold silence. After a moment, he stood from his chair, moved to the middle of the interrogation room, and began to dance. He completed some of the traditional ballet positions, calling them out as he remembered them. First position, second position, and so on. As unnerving as the performance was, many of Carpenter's other answers were even more suspicious. Often he told blatant lies to detectives or was dodgy about important details, including his whereabouts on the days of the murders. At the end of his questioning, Carpenter reportedly turned to authorities. Referring to Heather Skaggs, he said, I pray to God no one finds her body and finds that she's been raped. With these haunting words, police were itching to make an arrest. But in the hopes of building a stronger case, they let Carpenter go for a week. They put him under surveillance, secretly watching his every move, hoping he would lead them to more evidence. 
After a week, when no new evidence emerged, they decided it was time to officially make the arrest. They surrounded Carpenter's home, guns at the ready, prepared for resistance. But when an officer knocked on the door and explained to Carpenter that he was under arrest, he surrendered quietly. Even so, the horror wasn't over yet. Barely one week had passed when authorities received another call about the trailside killer. A pair of hikers had gone for a walk in Big Basin Redwood State Park, located near San Jose, when they smelled something disgusting coming through the trees. They followed the scent and found a rapidly decomposing body. Investigators quickly identified the body as Heather Skaggs, Carpenter's ninth victim. Her body was discovered in a shallow grave, covered in dirt and leaves. She'd been assaulted and shot, just like the others. After this discovery, police put Carpenter in a lineup. Stephen Hartle, the trailside killer's only surviving victim, positively identified Carpenter as the man who murdered his girlfriend. Months later, when Carpenter appeared before a judge, he reportedly showed no emotion at all at first. But his calm demeanor suddenly changed when the judge asked him his first question. Is your name true as stated? According to those in the courtroom that day, Carpenter contorted his face away from the judge and jury. He shook his head and stuttered so horribly he couldn't remain still. After a few moments, he was finally able to answer yes. On May 18, 1988, 58-year-old David Joseph Carpenter was officially convicted for the killings of Richard Stowers, Cynthia Moreland, Shauna May, Diane O'Connell, and Ann Alderson. He was also found guilty on two counts of rape and one count of attempted rape. Carpenter was sentenced to be executed. Now, almost 90, he remains on death row to this day. With the trailside killer safely locked away, the sickening attacks ended, and the parks and trails in the San Francisco Bay Area opened up again. Since then, the city has been free of the nightmare that haunted it for years. But many still remember the monster that once lurked on the paths, stalking victims in broad daylight and dragging them helplessly into the trees. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back Monday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. 
This episode of Serial Killers was written by Jess Honovich, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 6th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season. 